0: This Parsha podcast is sponsored by my dear friend and longtime podcast listener Aaron Finley in honor of his son Andrew's Bar Mitzvah. And we wish Andrew a happy and hearty Mazel Tov on behalf of the entire Parsha podcast family. Now, a bunch of the listeners asked me how my son Akiva's Bar Mitzvah was last week. It was splendid. And I'm going to give you all the details if you're interested in hearing about it after the A&Q at the end of the podcast – And boy, am I excited for this episode. There is something very special in store for you. I'm so excited for this week's Parsha podcast. I'm kind of giddy a little bit. Let's begin. Of course, we have a brand new book. We are up to the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. And we have a Parsha that talks all about sacrifices. Such an interesting subject. Such an exotic subject. And I saw a short but absolutely exquisite piece from my new favorite book, the Zfas Emes, which is written by one of the great Hasidic masters. It's a really short piece. It has only 75 words. And if you're familiar with this book, with the Zfas Emes, he has a very unique style. He doesn't really finish sentences. He doesn't point to sources. Everything is like a hint, a one-liner. It's a little bit difficult to unpack, but that's what we do over here at the Parsha Podcast. So we're going to read this piece, go through it, try to unpack it and see what we find. And I believe we will emerge with many valuable lessons about some very fundamental theological, cosmological precepts. I think this piece will illuminate the concept of what sacrifices are, how do they work. I think it will also show us a deeper dimension of what appears on the surface to be a very simple and mundane passage in the Torah and in Rashi. It also showcases us what man is, the variability of man, how man can become ascendantly great, but can also sink to very low points as well. It will sharpen the differentiation between the status of the individual and the collective, and perhaps it will also offer us a new appreciation for the very controversial principle of chosen people. What does that mean? And all this in 75 words. So let's begin. The parasha begins, Va'yikra el Moshe, God called to Moshe, and he spoke to him. From the tent of meeting saying, speak to the children of Israel and you should tell them when a man amongst you offers a sacrifice, you bring it from the cattle, you bring it from the herd, you bring it from the flock. That's the sacrifice that you offer to God. And Rashi in verse two points out the fact that it starts off Adam, a man amongst you who brings a sacrifice. And Rashi asks the question, why does it attribute the bringing of the sacrifice to Adam to a man? Says Rashi, that the lesson here is that just like the original Adam, the original man, Adam, the first Adam, he did not bring an offering that was stolen because Adam was incapable of theft because there's no other people around and therefore he owns everything. So just like Adam didn't bring from stolen animals a sacrifice, so to you, when you bring a sacrifice, you have to be like Adam, like Adam, and not bring from stolen animals. Adam, a man, and the name of, of course, the original Adam, he was incapable of theft, so to you, when you bring a sacrifice, you should be like Adam, And you cannot bring a sacrifice from a stolen animal. Seems pretty straightforward, pretty clear, Rashi. Says the Svasemis like this. When a man brings a sacrifice, he is atoned. You sacrifice the animal in the temple. You follow all the procedure, of course, Kohanim, the priest, they process the animal in the way that is prescribed in our Parsha and in the accompanying oral tradition in the Talmud. You bring the sacrifice and the man who offers the sacrifice is atoned for, is expiated, has their sins absolved. How does that work? This is maybe the most critical question of the whole Parsha. I do a sin. There's a blemish on my soul. I take one of my animals and I offer it as a sacrifice. And of course, there's so many different kinds of sacrifices. But the bottom line of all sacrifices that they provide atonement. I do a sin. I'm flawed. I have a blemish on my soul. I take the animal. I bring the animal as a sacrifice. And my soul is cleansed. If I sinned, if I rebelled against God, how do I get off the hook by offering my animal as a sacrifice? If the animal gets killed, what does that do with me? So perhaps we could say, well, you know, you confer your sins on the animal and the animal died for your sins, pardon the inference, but why should you, the bringer of the sacrifice be absolved via the death? The animal. So the Ramban, of course, says that, well, I really, when I sin against God, I'm supposed to be killed. But the Almighty, in his magnanimity, in his benevolence, he said, you know what, kill the animal instead. But if I'm supposed to die, how does killing the animal accomplish the same goal? This is a very good question, maybe the central question of the Parsha. And the answer is mind blowing, is life changing. He says like this, man draws life and vitality to all the animals. And quotes a verse in Psalms. The verse is talking about the stature of man. Man has lofty exalted stature. And the way it's described in Scripture, Psalms 8, You have made man just a little bit less than the divine. And you have adorned him, i.e. man, with glory and with majesty. And you have made him a master over your handiwork. The Almighty says, man, you, Lord, over all the other creations. Laying the world at his feet, sheep and oxen, all of them, and wild beasts too, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the earth, whatever travels the paths of the sea. Says this Fasim, it's a very powerful idea and a multi pronged one. We deliver life and vitality to the animals. And he explains using a concept that there are four. Fundamentally different dimensions of creations in this world. The lowest level is what's called domain inanimate creations, like a rock. The next level is tomeach. That's the animate, organic creations, like plants and vegetation and trees and the like. And then the third level there's the chai, the living thing, like animals. And then there's the fourth level, which is midaber, the speaker which are humans, humans who could speak, who can converse, who can verbalize, who have consciousness. This is the classification of the four different dimensions, four different levels, four qualitatively different standings of creation's domain, inanimate, the lowest level, the animate, the living, and the speaking. This is an ancient Jewish classification. In this world, there are at least four completely different dimensions of creations. And then he drops the bomb. He says that man is the one who transmits life and vitality to the lower three levels of creation. Of course, man is the medaber, is the speaker higher on this totem pole than animals and plants and inanimate objects like rocks, man is the one who transmits life and vitality to those three things. Meaning, all life and vitality, of course, comes from God. But there are different filters through which this vitality goes before it arrives at the final receptacle. So for example, we remember back in Genesis, Jacob has a nocturnal struggle with the angel of Esav. Esav, the nation, has an angel through which godly vitality is filtered through to the nation of Asaph. Every nation has an angel who intermediates between God and And that particular people, not just every nation, every land has an overseeing angel through which the Almighty's flow of vitality and life goes through. Every type of fruit has an overseeing angel that filters the godly vitality through. This is one of the most important ideas in Jewish theology. Everything that is not God, every creation, must be in some way connected to the one source of life and vitality, and that's God. But the closer you are, so to speak, the more spiritually lofty you are. So the angels, there aren't so many, so to speak, intermediate steps between them and God because they're so lofty. Whereas a rock... It's so physical, so so to speak, distant from God that the godly vitality, the rot, so to speak, connection to God goes through many steps. And every step, it gets diluted, shall we say, a little bit. And therefore, the connection is a bit more tenuous, but it's still there. The second anything loses a connection with God, it ceases to exist because there's only one source of existence, and that's God. And the difference between the creations, between an angel and a rock, is only how many degrees of separation, so to speak, exist between God and that particular thing. And every nation, every land, every type of fruit, even the rock, even the plants, even the animals, certainly the humans, even the angels, every creation has a connection between it and God But the type of connection and the layers of this connection are different. Now, there are some exceptions. For example, we're told the land of Israel has no filters. It's God himself who delivers the vitality to the land of Israel without an intermediary, which, of course, is really good, but it's also really bad. It's really good because we have a direct connection in the land of Israel to God But it's really bad because we don't have any degrees of separation. And therefore, in the land of Israel, there is an intolerance to rebellion. Hence, we're going to read a little bit later on in Leviticus, the land itself is designed to disgorge the sinners from it because this is a land that doesn't tolerate sin. And which even see historically, The land that has been conquered more than any other land, the land that's inhospitable to sinners, is the land of Israel because it has no filter. And it's not just the land. The Jewish people were told, we're not like Esau. We don't have an intermediary angel who is intermediating between us and God. We have a direct connection. Very good, very bad. Very good because we have a direct connection. Very bad because... There is less wiggle room. There's less flexibility. We have a shorter leash, so to speak, and that's why we get punished maybe more than any other nation. We're also told that there are four fruits that don't have an angel intermediating between them and God, and those are the four species that we shake on Sukkot. And the way this shakes out, like we said, this is a very important principle in, in Kabbalah in the theological, cosmological understanding of how things work, this extends a bit further. The Rambam, the laws of the foundations of Torah 2.7 tells us that there are 10 different levels of angels. The highest level, i.e. the level that's closest to God, is what's called chayos, and then Ofanim, and then er-elim, and then chashmalim, and then tzrafim, malachim, elohim, benayolim, kruvim, and the 10th and lowest level of angels is what's called Ishim. And the reason why the lowest level of angels is called Ishim, and the word Ish means man, the reason why it says the Rambam is because when God speaks to man via an angel, which angel does he use? He uses the angel that's closest to man. And that is Ishim, the lowest level of angel. And the highest level of man is can touch, so to speak, each other, it goes from God, so to speak, through all these ten levels of angels to the lowest level of angel and the one who intermediates, who has, so to speak, a touch point between angel and the angelic world. And man is the Ishim and the divine vitality filters through these ten levels of angels and the touch point in the two is the lowest level of angels and that's called Ishim. And the Tzfas Emes takes this a step further. And my suspicion, my hunch is that this is an accepted Kabbalistic principle. I have never seen it before. And I'm going to attribute it to the source where I saw it. Says the Tzfas Emes, we humans are the angels of the animals. Meaning just like the divine vitality flows from God to the thing that's most close to God, and then it gets a little bit diluted to the next thing, to the next level, to the next level, to the next level, as is described in Kabbalistic literature, from world to world to world to world to us, it doesn't stop there. It goes from us to the things that are lower than us, namely to the animals, to the plants, to the inanimate objects. So to the question of how can I be forgiven with the sacrifice of the animal, here's the answer. If I, as a human, as a speaker, if I am properly slated, properly assigned, so to speak, as being spiritually loftier than animals, I am the one who gives life to the animals animal has to be connected to God. Well, how's the animal connected to God? Via the things, via the string, so to speak, of things that are spiritually loftier than the animal. And who is spiritually loftier than the animals? Well, that's the human. And therefore, the animal's connection to God goes through me, the human. I am the one who gives over life from God, so to speak, to the animal. And therefore, when I offer the animal as a sacrifice, the life of the animal can indeed be attributed to me, the person who brings the sacrifice. And therefore, I'm not killing the animal to save me. I am giving life to this animal because the divine vitality, so to speak, filters through me to the animal And therefore, when I sacrifice the animal, there's a little bit of me, so to speak, or my influence that's being sacrificed. And it makes sense that I can be absolved of my sins as a result. But we're not done yet. Continues the Svasemes. Certainly Adam, the original Adam, he was someone who properly assumed the status of being loftier than animals. He was, after all, the prototype of a human who is higher, who is a notch above animals. And certainly on a collective level, that is true in every generation. But the individual can be spiritually lower than the animal. And what do we say about a human that's spiritually lower than the animal? We tell him, and he quotes the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, damcha." the Mestido preceded you. Humans are not fixed. We are not rigid. We're not static. Our place in this totem pole is dynamic. Unlike everything else that exists in this totem pole. The angel's an angel. Can't change that the animal instinct can change that that someach the thing that sprouts the animate flower or tree or plant or vegetation its spiritual standing is fixed but humans are dynamic when we are at our best like moses we're above the angels when we are at our worst we're below the animals. And therefore, what if a man is lower than animals and they want to bring a sacrifice? Well, in that instance, they're not the one who is giving life to the animal because on the spiritual totem pole, they're below the animal. The mosquito preceded them. And therefore, how can they bring a sacrifice? In that instance says the Svasemes, this is theft. Rashi tells us, you bring a sacrifice, but don't take an animal that's stolen. So on one level, what that means is that if you steal an animal, that's invalid to bring as a sacrifice. He's explaining it on a much deeper level, on a Kabbalistic level, what this means is that if you are spiritually lower than animals, then you cannot offer as a sacrifice. That is stealing because you are trying to, so to speak, sacrifice the soul of the animal, but that does not attribute to you because you're lower than the animal, this totem pole, and therefore you do not deliver, transmit, life and vitality from God to this animal. The sacrifice wouldn't even work based upon how we understand sacrifice is working now. When you do a sin, you yourself need to offer yourself as a sacrifice for God. That's how you fix it. Well, if you are spiritually loftier than the animal, you deliver life to the animal, and therefore the animal attributes its life to you. You kill the animal. You sacrifice the animal. It's almost as if you sacrifice yourself because the life of the animal comes from you and you could be atoned. But if you're lower than the animal, if the mosquito preceded you, because the human is dynamic, well, in that instance, you're stealing. The sacrifice doesn't work. So what's the solution? The solution is to submit yourself to the collective. And he goes back to verse 2 of our Parsha. Adam ki akriv mitem. When a man... Adam, who offers a sacrifice from amongst you. What does that mean? A man can say, you know what, maybe me as an individual, and by the way, whenever we say man, we mean mankind, not man versus woman. When a man as the individual could be lower than the animal, but as part of the collective, the man can be loftier than the animals because... As a species, on a species-wide scale, the man is always, or mankind, humanity, is always above the animals. And therefore, when a person submits themselves to the collective, they can offer a sacrifice, even if they individually are lower than the animals. This is a much, much deeper reading of Rashi. On a simple level, Rashi tells us, well, you cannot use a stolen animal, you gotta be like Adam. Adam didn't steal. You don't steal when you bring a sacrifice. But here the Sphazamis is offering us a much deeper insight into how life and vitality flows from God down to us and down through us to the themes that are below us on this spiritual totem pole. It goes God to the angels, and maybe there's 10 different levels of angels, and that's to the speaker, to the human, which goes from there to the animals, to the plants, to the inanimate Things like rocks, which by the way also have to have a spark of the divine within them, or else they cannot exist. And what do we call the spark within the inanimate objects? We call that subatomic particles. There is movement, there is energy, even in things that seem to be inert and lifeless. An atom is an infinitesimally tiny little milky way of activity and movement as the subatomic particles spin around the nucleus. But man is dynamic. Man is elastic. He could be loftier than the angels, but we could also tell him, hey, the mosquito preceded you you're lower than the animals. And if so, then to offer a sacrifice is theft because you are not filtering life to the animals if you're lower than them. Only when man is above the animals, either due to them being holy and lofty like Adam as an individual, or by them being part of the collective and therefore being associated with the species-wide level and species-wide on that level, the human is always greater than the animal. Well, in that instance, they confer life and vitality to the animal, and thus, by sacrificing the animal, we can realistically say that they sacrificed themselves. Or at least they sacrificed something that they were responsible for, and they are thus expiated from sin. What a deep reading of Rashi, and what a powerful insight. I think we can also extend this principle a bit further. I think this principle gives us a framework for understanding the very controversial subject of chosen people. And like we always like to do, we leave the controversial stuff for the end of the podcast. Most of the listeners are tuned out. It's only the diehards that remain, and only they're listening, and only they get to enjoy this controversy. So what's this whole idea of chosen people? It's a very difficult concept for us to reconcile. It sounds elitist. Is it racist? Is it xenophobic? How can we say that we're better than other people? So first of all, it cannot be racist when Judaism is literally open to every race, creed, and color. And it can't be xenophobic when Jews come from every country in the world. But it does sound quite elitist. What do we mean when we say chosen people? So I think on a simple level, it means that, well, we were given Torah, we were chosen, we were chosen to be God's people, we have his land, we're there to fulfill the World's mission, we're there to teach the world about God. But the Talmud says something very surprising. This is the Talmud book of Yevamos, page 63a. It tells us that all the families of the world, even the families that live in the world or in the land, they do not receive blessing only because of us. All the blessing delivered to all of humanity comes because of the Jewish people a pretty bold statement. Continues the Talmud. Even the ships, the merchant ships, that come from Galia to Aspamia, two cities, they do not receive their blessing only because of the Jewish people. The blessing of the merchant ships of the whole world hinges upon us. And on the flip side, The punishment only comes to the world because of us. These are very shocking statements in the Talmud. All commerce in the world hinges upon us. All blessing in the world hinges upon us. All punishment in the world hinges upon us. What does that mean? We seem to be so self-centered. I think this concept that the Svas MS outlines for us I think it gives the whole subject of chosen people a new dimension. We said that there were four levels of creation in the world. You have the lowest level, the domain, inanimate rocks. That's one level. A level up, you have the Tzomech, the things that sprout, the things that are organic, the things that grow, the things that are dynamic, the plants, the trees, the fruits, the vegetation, those kinds of things, things that grow from the ground, level two. Level three, things that are alive, all the animals. Number four, things that speak, humans. Our sages tell us that with the Jewish people receiving Torah, that created a fifth level, a fifth dimension. Torah creates the ability for man, and of course, mankind, to transcend above the level of the mere speaker, level four, to the fifth dimension to become like an angel. We have the Almighty's mitzvahs. They give us the tools to isolate our soul and to identify and begin to live as our soul. And that is above the level of, of a standard speaker, a human, on the totem pole. Thus, perhaps what it means on on this dimension, chosen people, chosen people means that because we, via Torah, ascend to this higher level, all the blessing of the world, and as well all the curse, all the divine connection, so to speak, to the world, filters through us. And this is, in fact, what God tells Abraham. All those that bless you, I will bless. All those that curse you, I will curse. And then he adds, Through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. God promises Abraham, you will transcend above man to a new level. And because you are higher so to speak, closer to God, more spiritual than the regular speaker, you will be the filter of life and vitality to the whole world. That's the value proposition of Torah. The Almighty gives us the opportunity to ascend to a new level, to become like angels, and thereby to be the chosen people who deliver life and vitality from God to the whole world. I like to say that the anti-Semites are right. We do control the world financial system. We do control the weather. We control everything. On a spiritual level, what this means is that via Torah, the Almighty gives mankind the opportunity to ascend above all other members of our species, and to become like an angel. And the example that the Kuzri gives, he gives several examples, he says, man can walk through a fire and not get singed. Man can survive 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Man's face could be as illuminescent as the sun. That's not a normal human that we're familiar with. That's a different level. And that's what Torah offers us. And once we accept that bargain and we ascend to that new level, well, then all of the godly blessing and influence and life and vitality comes through us because we're on a higher level. But of course, that doesn't mean that we should lord over other people. If you do that, you are explicitly rejecting the premise of Torah, but what it means is that as children of Abraham, as descendants of the people that were plucked from Egypt, as people who stood at the foot of the mountain at Sinai, we accept the responsibility for the entire world. In effect, we have become a new class of people. We are still dynamic. We can be higher than people. We can be lower than people. We can be lower than animals. We can be higher than angels. But via Torah, we were given the power and the potential and the responsibility to ascend above all. And like we said, this opportunity is available for all humans. All humans who say, I want in. I want to be the mightiest representative in the world. I want to perpetuate the legacy of Abraham. I want to complete the mission that Abraham began. You are opening yourself up to the opportunity to ascend above other humans, to become part of this fifth class of creation, to earn the tools to become like Abraham and Moshe, go 40 days and forty nights without eating, maybe even time travel. All these cool things that exist only on that dimension – not to standard-issue humans, and also thereby be the filter through which the entire world receives its divine vitality, that is the bargain of Sinai, and that, of course, is also the responsibility that our nation must bear. Okay, let's get to this week's A&Q. The question as follows. The question comes from the first verse. Rashi tells us that if you look in a Torah scroll, you'll see that the Almighty gives commands to Moshe, go speak to the children of Israel saying, and he gives a whole long list of instructions. But in a Torah scroll, and you can actually make this out in many versions of the Chumash as well, there are often paragraph breaks. And some of them are full breaks where the line is empty, is blank all the way to the next line. And some of them are partial paragraph breaks where you have, you know, nine spaces before the next continuation of the prophecy from God to Moshe. And Rashi, in the first verse of our Parsha, tells us the reason for this. Why did the Almighty have a break a pause, if you will, in middle of his instruction to Moshe. It's not a new prophecy. It's a continuation of one long prophecy, but a prophecy, instruction, go tell the Jewish people this, that, and the other. And then a pause, a break. And then it continues. Why does the Torah have that? Why did the Almighty pause in between his command to Moshe? Says Rashi... To give Moshe a break, to dwell upon the message, upon the instruction, to think about a certain concept before you move on to the next concept. To reflect, to think, to ruminate, to cogitate, to digest one message before you move on to the next message. Says Rashi, well, if God is teaching Moshe and Moshe has to have a break, to absorb and digest the message before you move on to the next subject. All the more so, if you have a regular human teaching another regular human, a lay person to a lay person, all the more so you have to have a break. Very nice lesson. Every time God spoke to Moshe, there were breaks between subjects for Moshe to absorb the message. And certainly for us, we're simpletons. And we're learning from simpletons. not God teaching Moshe. It's a human, regular human, teaching another human. All the more so, you have to let things settle in before you can move on. Maybe we should have a break between the Parsha podcast and the A&Q to let the audience absorb the message. Should we do that? Should we have like a 10-second break? I don't know. People might get a little nervous. Maybe we should do that. But here's the question. Here is this week's A&Q. This principle is true, Rashi tells us, Every time the Almighty tells Moshe something, gives him a message, and there's a break. Why are we waking up right now, the first verse of Leviticus? Why are we only told this now? Hitherto, we have had all kinds of laws and all kinds of breaks. You look, for example, Parsha's Mishpatim. It's a litany a long laundry list of mitzvos, and there's all kinds of breaks between paragraphs. And why were there breaks? Well, Rashi here tells us for Moshe to think and reflect and absorb and ruminate upon the message before we move on to the next message. Why are we only told about this here? Shouldn't Rashi have told us maybe... Back when Moshe started giving instructions to Jewish people, and there are paragraph breaks in middle of the prophecy, the Almighty is telling Moshe, stop, dwell upon the message. Think about it before we move on. Why only now, when we're talking about sacrifices, when the book of Leviticus begins, only now are we told about this important principle That you have to stop, and you have to reflect, and you have to think about a message, about an idea, about a law, about a commandment, before you move on to the next related law. If you have an answer, please email me, RabbiWalby, at gmail.com. Let's get to last week's Parsha podcast question, and that is, why was Bitzalel chosen? and not his father Uri. We spoke last week how Batsalah had all the credentials, and he had all the tools and skills needed to build the Mishkan, and he got those from his antecedents. His grandfather was really righteous, who his great-grandmother, Miriam. And because of that, the Almighty endowed their descendant with all the tools and all the wisdom to build the Mishkan. Well, how come it stepped over Uri? That was our question. And several listeners said the answer that I was looking for. And they said that Betzalel, he was 13 years old. His father obviously was older. Betzalel, we can surmise, was a minor at the time of the golden calf. And even though Uri may not have been involved in the sin of the golden calf, tabernacle was built as a response to the golden calf, as a way to fix and remedy the sin of the golden calf, maybe Uri, because he was an adult at the time of the golden calf, maybe he was, to a certain extent, complicit because he was part of the collective that sinned, and therefore he could not be the one to repair the damage. Betzalel, on the other hand, had a clean slate. There was nothing holding him back. He had no spiritual baggage. And Betzalel is the one who can repair the damage. My friend Yitzi added, he pointed out that later on in the Torah, the book of Numbers, we read about the story of the spies. The spies go scout the land and they come back with a damning report and... As a result of that, they went for 40 days, the nation will endure 40 years in the wilderness, and everyone who is an adult at the time of the sin of the spies, they won't enter the land. And Yitzi pointed out that you don't imagine every single Jew was someone who partook in this sin, nevertheless we are often treated as part of a collective. And therefore, if you are part of that generation, you are part of the people, the nation, the generation, who participate in the sin of the golden calf, or in the sin of the spies, you get judged alongside them, and therefore, you are responsible, so to speak, for the deeds of the collective. And therefore, only Betzalel, who was a minor, you would imagine, at the time of the sin of the golden calf, he in no way is complicit or can be held liable in any way for the sin of the golden calf. And therefore, he is clean. He can build the tabernacle. We are part of a collective. Of course, we're judged as individuals, but we're also judged as part of a collective. We are rewarded and were often punished collectively as well. Uri perhaps had the pedigree. My opinion, I would imagine he had all the tools that Petsalo had. But it is only someone who did not partake in any way in the Sin of the Golden Calf that can build the tabernacle which is there to fetch it. Okay, so I promised at the end of the podcast I will tell you the stories that happened. On the Bar Mitzvah weekend this past weekend, a lot of people asked me how it was. I could point them, hey, listen to the Parsha podcast all the way to the end, and I'll tell you everything that happened over the course of the Bar Mitzvah. It's also a nice way to encourage people to listen to the end. So the Bar Mitzvah, we had parallel tracks. We had the Bar Mitzvah for the family and close relatives and some close friends, and all of the other friends and acquaintances and people live in our neighborhood. And the reason for that is that typically you make a bar mitzvah, a big, massive gala bar mitzvah celebration. You invite all your friends and family and everyone comes together. But because of the pandemic, my wife and I felt it was inappropriate to do a large indoor event, even though you can make the argument, well, things are getting a little better and, you know, the vaccines are working, Still, we didn't feel like it was appropriate to do that. And therefore, we decided against doing a large indoor event. So we said like this, all the family that come will have a celebration with the family. Smaller, more intimate setting. And then for everyone else, we'll do an outdoor event on Shabbos, an outdoor Kiddush. So we got several tents that we put up outdoors and that was reserved for Shabbos afternoon for the kiddish for all the invitees, which was really everyone in the neighborhood and all of our friends. For the family, for the people that came in, especially to Houston to celebrate the Bar Mitzvah with us, we had a separate track. And in fact, my wife is the oldest of eight children, and every single one of her family members... Four of them came with their spouses as well. They were all there. Not only that, my in-laws were there. They flew in. And every single one of their descendants were there as well. So my wife's sister has four children. They were all there. And two of her brothers came with their two and three children, respectively. So my in-laws were there with every single one of their descendants. A pretty amazing thing. On my side of the family... I come from one of nine children. I'm the sixth of nine children. And of the nine children, four of us live in Israel. So the five siblings that live in the United States, they all came with their spouses, not all their children. And one of my brothers, my brother Yoni, who lives in Israel, he somehow managed to evade and sidestep all the COVID restrictions and they closed the airport and you got to have your COVID test and all that flying across the Atlantic and actually came to join us in Houston. In fact, my other brother, Mordechai, my youngest brother, he was slated to come as well with his wife. And they were going to spend all of Pesach in the United States as well. But his flight was canceled. And in fact, Israel, they shut down the airport. And then they opened it, but only for like a thousand passengers a day. So there were canceling flights left, right, and center. So Monday came, and my brother Mordechai and his wife Yocheved, they're the ones, by the way, who have a son Yakov Walby. You remember I mentioned that a couple of months ago. So their flight was canceled. Now my brother Yoni, also lives in Israel, also had a flight. I said, Oh, of course he's not gonna show up. How could he show up? His flight on Thursday will also be canceled. Just wait. But what do you know? United canceled all kinds of flights, but his flight, he managed to take off and to come for the bar mitzvah. Now we had around 50 guests who were there for the whole Shabbos, who were like the close family and friends who came from out of town. And the problem is, well, how do you get housing for everyone? the answer is we live in an amazing community and people are so generous and so hospitable that in an instant, in a flash, we got housing for everyone. Just an amazing thing. People say, oh, yeah, I have a guest house. I have a guest room. Sure, no problem. And like this, we found places for everyone. We also offered for all the guests that came from out of town uh, airport pickups. So we were doing airport runs back and forth. Only a few people had to, take, had to take an Uber. And then we said, okay, from Thursday night dinner all the way till Sunday brunch, we're covering all your meals. So Thursday night, I went to the local pizza shop. I bought nine pies of pizza. Plus we had tons of sushi and French fries. Everyone was well fed. And then Friday morning, we had a very large breakfast in our home. And then I wanted to arrange for all the guests who came some activity, something to do on Friday before Shabbos. So I said, you know what? We have all these Canadians coming. As you perhaps know, my wife comes from a Canadian family. So they live in Canada. And my family comes from the Northeast. We have to give them a real genuine Texas experience. So I rented out a a local gun range. I rented out the gun range and I have some friends who uh, have lots of different firearms and I bought a thousand rounds and we had – we went to the shooting range and we had first the class on gun safety and self-defense and then we had, you know, 10 lanes where everyone could try all these different guns, Berettas, and we had a sniper gun, and AR, rifles. Really cool. Everyone had a great time. And then after that, we had a Friday afternoon, like a little snack. And then right before Shabbos, we had family photos. We hired a photographer. Everyone could come, take family photos. And then we had the Friday night services. And then we had the Shabbat dinner. All the guests that came from out of town, all the direct family, we had around 50 people, like I mentioned, and that had to be catered. Now, the bad story here is that originally we had planned to do it in our home. All the guests that come will find a place to put them to stay, housing, but the meals will happen in our home. Why? Well, first of all, it's a lot cheaper, obviously. But second of all, if you rent a hall, and there really aren't so many options in the neighborhood, because of course you cannot go too far because everyone has to walk there on Shabbos, but if you make it in a hall, everything has to be catered because unless it's kosher certified or it's made in the hall itself with a kosher supervisor on site, you cannot bring it into the hall. So we were planning on making it in our home. So my wife was already working on the menu and making some food in advance. And then we said, you know what? It's not responsible. Our home is kind of small, and to fit fifty people, it's really going to be tight. And in the middle of a pandemic, it's not the right thing to do. Let's rent out the social hall in one of the local schools, one of the local synagogues. We'll have the social hall. Plenty of room, and we'll uh, we'll do it there. So my wife had already made all the rolls, like the challah rolls, for the for the Shabbat, but we can't use that, of course, because that wasn't made with official kosher certification by official caterer or made in the facilities of the hall. So we cannot use them. But okay, not the end of the world. We'll find a use for those challah rolls. So we made an order with the caterer, fantastic, 50 people Friday night, amazing. So we arrive to the hall in the local shul after davening, after prayer on Friday night. And my wife tells me, Houston, we have a problem. There's a problem. The caterer didn't send challah rolls. All they sent was a few small trays of sliced challah, but no challah rolls. What are we going to do? We have a problem. We have a crisis. What's going to be? Everyone's expecting to have like a challah roll. Of course, on Friday night dinner, you have to have at least two challahs, and we don't have any of them. So we scrambled a little bit, and they found in the freezer from a previous event that happened In the social hall, they found 30 or so little challah rolls. So we took the little challah rolls plus the sliced challah that we did get from the caterer. And we had enough food for Friday night. But here's the problem. What are we going to do about Shabbos day? We have Shabbos lunch scheduled and there's 80 people supposed to come. And we have no challah rolls. And we can't call the caterers Ready, the Shabbos. What are we going to do? Hold on. We'll tell you what happened. So Friday night was an amazing dinner. We had a few speeches. I told the audience, I said, listen, I prepare speeches every day of every week. I'm not preparing a speech for you all. I'm going to speak from the heart. I think it went over very well. All of our children were there with all their cousins. It was really beautiful. Everyone's singing. There was a grand festive atmosphere. My son, Yehoshua, whose bar mitzvah is next summer, and my daughter, Miriam, they wrote a poem about their older brother, Akiva, and they performed it with total panache in front of the entire guest body, loudly. It was a very nice poem, and the food was incredible, and the food was plentiful. And then Shabbos morning services were unbelievable. Akiva was splendid. And after davening, after praying, we had the Kiddush. Like we said, the Kiddush was open to everyone, not just to the close family and friends. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people out in those outdoor tents that we talked about. And my wife made so much food. There was was so much food at this event. There was like a head spinning amount of food. And basically all of it got finished with like, 10 bottles of booze, two gargantuan pots of chulant of the traditional Shabbos morning stew. There were trays and trays of kugel. We had 10 deli rolls. All of it was gone. But it was really stunning and it was really beautiful and it was touching to see so many friends come and wish us a Mazel Tov. And then after the kish was over, we had another festive banquet in the social hall So we had the 50 people that were there Friday night, plus we invited torch staff, plus all the single people that live in the neighborhood. You know, we had to make a decision who to invite, who not to invite. If we invited all of our friends, there'd be 500 people there. We had to make a cutoff someplace, so that was our cutoff. We invite torch staff and their family, plus single people in the neighborhood. We had around 80 people for Shabbos lunch. And by Shabbos lunch, Akiva reeled off his speech like a total champ. And there were mountains of food. And we finished the feast at around 4-ish on Shabbos afternoon. And the halacha is, they're supposed to have three meals on Shabbos. So we had another meal at 6 p.m. And then after Shabbos, we invited all of Akiva's friends for an outdoor barbecue. And kumzitz, even more food. I told everyone, I said, listen, I'm responsible to feed you, but you're on your own with respect to your diet. You start it when you leave. And then Sunday morning, Chaya's, my wife Chaya's colleagues, they sponsored a gala breakfast and that was just awesome, incredible. And it was really beautiful and amazing to spend the festive Bar Mitzvah weekend with all of our family and all of our friends. And then two more things I have to tell you before I finish the whole story. Three years ago, I recorded an interview with my sister Esther. And I'm sure many of y'all have listened to it. It's not on the Parsha podcast channel. It's on the This Jewish Life channel. And I interviewed her because she had lost a baby to SIDS at 16 weeks. And I spoke to her soon after that had happened. And I talked about, you know, loss and and death and mourning and bereavement. If you have not gotten a chance to listen to that episode, you should do so. It's a very moving, stirring discussion that I had with my sister. But I told her, Esther said, listen, it's been three years since we had that episode. We have to do a round two. We have to have a follow-up. We have to have a sequel. So Sunday night after... The festivities had concluded and after everyone was on their own, I said, I'm feeding them till Sunday breakfast. The truth is that everyone came for Sunday night dinner because we had so much leftovers. But after that was over, I said, okay, Esther, we're going to have a podcast. So we came to the Torch Center and uh, I interviewed her and that podcast is ready to go. I'm actually probably going to release it after Pesach. So you have some time. If you have not yet listened to part one of that that we did three years ago, listen to it. It will change your life. But one more thing happened, which I really like. This is a cute little story. So my brother Yoni, he flew in all the way from Israel to join us for the Bar Mitzvah weekend. Isn't that nice of him? What a nice brother to have. Now to fly back, he has to have a COVID test, a negative COVID test, or else they won't land them onto the plane. Now, there are no direct flights from Houston to Tel Aviv. So you have to fly a stopover. Most often it's via Newark, and then you have the Newark-Tel Aviv leg of the trip. So he had an early morning flight from Houston to Newark. This is Monday morning, two days ago. And then he had... An evening flight, Newark, to Tel Aviv. So he figured, well, I'll get to Newark like 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I'll go get a COVID test. And then when I get on to the Newark-Tel Aviv flight, I'll show them my COVID test. Brilliant, right? But here's the problem. He arrived at the Houston airport and they look at his ticket, and it's a flight to Tel Aviv with a stopover in Newark. So they tell him, listen, Habibi, as the say in Israel, this is an international flight, and you're flying to Israel. You have to show your COVID test. Where's your COVID test? Where's your negative COVID test? So he says, well, I was planning on getting it in my stopover. I have a 10-hour stopover in Newark. I'll go in New York to get a COVID test. They say, no, sorry. This... It's an international flight. To Israel, you have to show your negative COVID test before you get onto the plane. But I'm going to Newark. I'm not going to Israel. doesn't matter. You have to show your negative COVID test. But they tell him, in the airport, there's an urgent care. Go to the urgent care and get your negative COVID test. Well, how do I get to the urgent care? Well, you have to go past security. Well, they won't let me go past security because you don't let me go because I don't have the COVID test. So he had this intractable problem that he can't get past security without a COVID test and he can't get a COVID test without going past security. How do you resolve this problem? So what did he come up with? Here's what he came up with. He booked another flight from Houston to Newark just a one-way ticket and for that leg for that flight you don't need a COVID test so he has his boarding pass for that flight and he goes to check in he checks in he goes to the security they let him through because that's not an international flight he gets past security he calls up United and cancels that flight he goes to the covid place he goes to the urgent care he takes the covid test of course it turns out negative he gets into the plane flies to newark has the stopover and is now i'm reliably told safe in his home in the land of israel so that's the story it was an amazing bar mitzvah weekend it was incredible Did I forget? Oh, I forgot to tell you what happened. (laughs) Oh, wow. I should have made notes for this. Shabbos morning, what happened with the rolls? So, let me just finish that point. This is why you have to have notes. Otherwise, you just talk and skip over stuff. Shabbos morning, we had no rolls. Because we had the 30 rolls or so that they found in the freezer. But what do we do about Shabbos? Day. Day. So there was someone in our neighborhood that had made a bar mitzvah the previous week. And they had come over to the kitchen in the social hall and they had baked lots and lots of challah rolls. And we were told that they had many left over. So we went over to them and they had 60 challah rolls that they were so happy to give us. So we took their 60 challah rolls. But 60 challah rolls is not enough because we had 80 people expected. So we went home and I got the challah rolls that we had baked under the impression that we're going to host it in our home. I got permission to use those challah rolls in the shul's social hall. They made an exception for me due to the uh, extenuating circumstances and everything worked out. And like we always say, things just work out. The money has our back. So that's the story of the Bar Mitzvah. I don't know if people are even interested in hearing it. If they are, if they're listening, it's uh, really nice to know that people care about this. And uh, I guess that's it. Until next week, thank you for listening to this week's Parsha podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Have an amazing Shabbos, amazing rest of your week. And please, God, we will talk again next week.